Today's scripture is Romans 11, verses 25 through 36. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they, may, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So when Carol and I moved to Austria, we, uh, Austria, where we served working with refugees was in the four Alpen. So they were in the smaller hills before the Alps. And uh, we went there and first day we got there, uh, the team leader whom I had not met asked me to go on a walk. And so we took a walk and he went right straight up this a mountain or this large hill. It was probably a couple thousand feet in elevation. And uh, he wanted to show me the town, you know, and, and so he took me up this hill. And I just remember, I, I had, wasn't much of a hiker, and just my legs were like on fire in the first five minutes. And it is amazing thing what pride will do to push you through that kind of pain. But we, we walked up this, this side of a mountain, and, and we got to the top, and we saw this vista, and we were able to see the whole town. Uh, you know, where the streets were, where the buildings were. And it was really an incredible look. We had just gotten there, so I didn't know the details of the town that well, but, uh, but as I would come to find, and as I lived in the town and worked in the town, the details made sense when and because I had that perspective, that, that higher perspective. In other words, sometimes we can be so immersed in details that we miss the big picture. I think that's what Paul's doing right here. He's trying to give us a perspective here at the end of chapter 11. You know, when you look at chapters 9 through 11, Paul's been trying to answer this question, is God faithful? Is God's word true? The question had to be asked because the whole Old Testament is filled with God making promises to Israel about their salvation and about the promises and the inheritance of Abraham that would be theirs. And yet when the Messiah comes, they reject him. And God, in fact, rejects them because they rejected the Messiah. So the question was, can God save? Will God save Israel? He made all those promises. And what we found in chapter 9, at least in verse 6, is kind of an interpretive key to these three chapters. In chapter 9, he says that not all Israel belonged to Israel. Not all the children of Abraham are the children of promise. So what we find here is that there is a true Israel within the ethnic Israel. And to them, God has been faithful. 
He has saved them. He has brought the inheritance of Abraham to them. So God is faithful. That's Paul's whole argument here in chapters 9 through 11. And it's from there that he moves to the very end that we'll look at, which is this word of praise for God's greatness. Paul ends this theological discussion. He ends in a word of praise. That's where we ought to end, that we ought to come out of the confusion of the mystery of God and end celebrating the majesty of God. That's how we're going to look at the passage in two pieces. The first piece in verses 25 to 32 you have the unfolding of the mystery, or really the humbling of the mystery. We ought to be humbled as we understand all that God is and all that God has done. And then in humility, we turn to celebrate the majesty of God in verses 33 to 36. It has to end that way. If it doesn't, we've missed the mark. We've missed the mark. So let's look first at this humbling ourselves before the mystery. You notice that's what Paul is doing in verse 25. If you look at the text, he says right there, he says, lest you be wise in your own sight. You know, Paul is looking at this Gentile church. They're predominantly Gentile. There were Jewish believers in this church, of course. Uh, But he's saying, don't be wise in your own sight. In other words, there was a lot more Gentiles coming to faith, believing in Jesus Christ. A lot of the Jewish neighbors were not believing. And they began to become conceited, wise in their own sight, how they have believed in Jesus Christ. To their credit almost. And Paul's saying, don't be wise. He's already explained to them that it was a partial hardening that moved the gospel to the Gentiles. In other words, you were grafted in. Remember last week? We're the riffraff. We've been brought in by the sheer mercy and the grace of God. He wants them to be humble. I think he loves them. He calls them brothers. He doesn't want them to stumble over spiritual pride and arrogance. And so he says to them, I don't want you to be unaware about this mystery. Now, what is this mystery? Well, you know, mystery in Scripture is not like a whodunit novel. It's not like we're trying to figure out the pieces. A mystery in Scripture is a truth of God that is hidden by his choice, and then he reveals it. And he's revealing this. Well, what is the mystery he's revealing? Well, I would argue that the mystery that he is revealing is simply the interweaving of Jewish and Gentiles together into one new body with Christ as its head. It's the forming of a new people where there will be no ethnic distinctions that separate them. It's like the one olive tree that we read last week. You know that the Gentiles were grafted into the olive tree. But if you look at 23, you see that the Jews are also grafted into that new tree. So it's a new tree with Christ as its head. Now, Paul's already said this in chapter 10. He makes the argument, he says, There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call upon him. So Paul's saying, don't be conceited. You have been grafted in. They will be grafted in. It's one new people now for God. God is forming a new society of his own people. But then you get to that verse. It says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. He's bringing back up this question of Israel. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, what does this mean? There is no shortage of theological ink that has been spilled on this passage. Every word is contested in this. So let me give you a few different views 
and then we'll speak about which one. So the first view, all Israel is going to be saved. So this is speaking to the culmination of God's plan, or the eventual culmination of God's plan. What does it mean? Well, one view would look at Israel as ethnic Israel. These are the physical descendants of Abraham. In other words, this position holds that in those final days, when the fullness of the Gentile comes in, which we read about, that is when God gathers up all those of the elect of the Gentiles, when they're drawn in, then the ethnic nation will turn by faith and believe. So it's more of a sequential look. There's the time of the Gentiles, and then there'll be the time of the Jews. So, and all Israel will be saved would be that, that at the end. Now, I would point out to you that in the text, it doesn't say until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved. There is a Greek word for that. It's not used. It's in this way all Israel will be saved. But that, that's option one. Behind door number two would be the, the consideration that all Israel will be saved is speaking to a spiritual Israel. In other words, all the elect of God throughout the history of the church, they will be saved and then the end will come. Now, of course, this view holds on to the idea that not all Israel belong to Israel. So the use of Israel here is not applying to ethnicity, but to those elect. And the ground for that, of course, would be not just in Romans 9, 6, but also in Galatians 6, 16, where Paul calls the church the Israel of God. So there's a precedent for looking at the word Israel and seeing the elect. And it's also kind of supported in the sense that in this way all Israel will be saved. In what way? Well, in the way that God draws, that the partial hardening moves the gospel to the Gentiles, through the ministry of the Gentiles, people are coming to faith, and in this way. So there's not a sequential look at option two, it's more concurrent. You know, there's a partial hardening, Jews are coming in by virtue of jealousy of the Gentiles, Gentiles are coming in, all the elect are being saved. Now, the third view is kind of a variation of the second, and that is simply this, that when you read all Israel will be saved, it's speaking about all ethnic Israel. So this view is trying to maintain the word Israel having ties to ethnicity, but it's the elect of Israel being saved throughout history. Now, which one is it? Well, there are scholars in each view that I respect. Uh, to go through each view, kind of their pluses and minuses would be too much for one or probably even two sermons. So which one should we choose? Which one is it? Well, I just did the eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a tiger by its toe. Here's what I would say to you. Uh, the, the point of this whole passage, Paul is not trying to untangle all the details of salvation or even the perfect relationship between Israel and the church. He's trying to show us that God's faithful, that God has kept his promise to be faithful to his people. There's always been a remnant. We saw that when we looked at Elijah. There's always been a remnant where God has saved his people. And so Paul's main purpose here is to show the faithfulness of God, to not tease out every detail, but to show that, that the faith, there's a partial hardening, not a full hardening. So Jew, ethnic Jews have been saved in every generation. 
and that God will save his people. And you see in verse 32, he kind of sums it all up in 32 when he says, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So at the end of the day, Jew or Gentile, wherever we land, at the end of the day, all people were consigned to disobedience so that God would have mercy on us all. In other words, mercy is something you don't deserve. Mercy is something you don't warrant. Mercy is given at the discretion of the giver. That's all it is. It's total kindness given out of the goodness of the giver. And so what Paul's saying here is at the end of the day, we just need to be humble. And that's why he says, don't be wise in your own sight. It, it, is, it is amazing that as humans, we can give our thoughts just truth. The way we think about people or situations, the way we perceive motives in others, we can just assume we're right. We don't even tend to question our own wisdom. The way we think about God, the thoughts we have about why God does this, that, or the other thing. We just assume we're right on that. Paul's saying you don't want to do that. You don't want to be wise in your own eyes. You don't want to take some sort of spiritual pride because you have a certain system of theology. You don't want to take spirit, you don't want to walk in spiritual arrogance over even the growth that you've experienced in Christ. He, he's saying clearly, don't be wise in your own eyes. Now, I will say this. The gospel, th th there's an implicit danger in the gospel. Because the gospel is of grace, it's unmerited. But when things come to us unmerited, sometimes they become unnoticed, and then they become often unappreciated. Just by virtue of the fact that when something is given to us, we quickly become almost feel entitled to it. And it leads to a degree of pride and arrogance. And, and I would just say, a mark of the church is always humility in understanding that we've been saved by mercy and mercy alone. Regardless of how we sort out that all Israel will be saved, we are people who want to be killing pride. Uh, we want to be reminding, of our, reminding ourselves of the grace of God. Listen, over the past probably three to five years, you've seen a number of evangelical uh, celebrity pastors fall. Not in, not in sexual failure, uh, but many of them are falling because of pride and arrogance, heavy-handed leadership, authoritarianism. Uh, th there is a certain heaviness to it, and I don't need to mention them because you know who they are. That is not to be a part of the church. It's not to be a part of her leadership, for sure. It's not to be a part of her membership either. We don't want to be wise in our own eyes. Even though this mystery, Paul's unveiled this mystery to us, still kind of mysterious to me in many ways, we want to be humbled by the mystery of God. Now, when we walk in humility before this mystery, recognizing that all of us have been consigned, the Christian has been consigned to disobedience so that the Christian can receive mercy, it puts us all on the same level. So, when we understand that, and we walk in humility together, now we can move from the mystery, now we can move to the majesty of God. You know, good theology will always lead to a doxology, a praise. A good theology shouldn't lead to division, but to delight. And that's where Paul goes in 33 to 36. He moves from the mystery, which should humble us, to the character of God, 
which we should celebrate. And that's the move Paul makes. That's the move we'll make. Look with me in 33, because in 33 to 36, he brings up three aspects of God's majesty. And I want to just slowly walk through it with you. Notice the first thing he speaks about, the greatness of God's riches and wisdom. He says, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. I mean, Paul's like that alpine climber. He gets to the top of the mountain and he begins to see the vast glory of everything that's before him. The vast riches of God. And the riches of God, I think predominantly in Paul's mind, is the riches of what we have in Jesus Christ, his son. And the incredible blessings that God would not spare his own son, but give him up, prepare a body for him that he could live with us, live among us, display God's glory, take upon himself our sins, bear the wrath of God, be raised from the dead, seed it now forming a new people. You know, Paul's already talked about these riches. In chapter 2, he says that you've known the riches of God in his kindness as he grants to us repentance. Or in chapter 9, he talks about the riches given to those vessels of mercy. We are unfathomably rich in God because of Christ. He says, oh, the depth of his riches. Do you meditate on his riches? I mean, do you consider the riches that are ours because of faith in Christ? But not just the riches, the wisdom of God. He says, oh, the depth of the wisdom of God. I mean, consider the depth of God's wisdom, like Mariana's Trench, that, that deep hole in the Pacific, over 37,000 feet deep. It is deeper in depth than Everest is in height. Can you imagine trying to swim to the bottom of that? You'd be crushed. Uh, trying to understand the full wisdom of God would crush you. This is why we're so confounded often by God's plans. This is how God can work all things out together for good. And we don't understand it. It goes beyond our ability to comprehend. God's wisdom is that great. A.W. Tozier, 20th century author and pastor in Chicago, wrote these words. He says, God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feelings, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones, all dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven and hell. He knows it all. I mean, the wisdom of God before us is profound. It, it, it ought to be causing us to be breathless. The wisdom of God. So Paul moves from the mystery of the salvation which humbles us, and he just says, oh, the depth of your wisdom. But not just that. Look in the second half of 33, because he moves to his ways are unsearchable. He says, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. In other words, the way that God moves with his sovereign purpose is beyond tracing out. That idea of tracing out is kind of like, you know, when you see footprints in the snow and you try to follow them, but there's a big snowstorm, and, and, and slowly they begin to erase. You can't follow them. The, the way he moves, the way he brings judicial actions on people. You know, a number of years ago, uh, a small little church in Baltimore, uh, Baltimore City was 
uh, robbed. This thief was in the back. They took collection. All the money was piled up, and this guy stands up. He robs the church, and he takes the money, and he runs out the front door of the church down the stairs, and boom, dies of a heart attack. Right there on the steps, dies. Boom, money everywhere. That's it. It's done. It's over. We don't need a case. God just dealt with that immediately. But he doesn't always do that. Sometimes he delays. Sometimes we don't even see it in this life. We don't understand the sovereign purposes in natural disasters or in his judgments upon the nations. We don't understand why he might bring salvation to a sinner that we don't think is even savable, but he saves them. We don't even think it's worthy to save them, but he does. His ways are beyond tracing out. It causes us to pause. Instead of getting in these theological knots over things, we ought to just stop and say, his ways are beyond us. And this is why you see in 34, Paul, in 34 and 35, he goes to Isaiah again. How often has Paul gone to Isaiah to argue his case? He goes to Isaiah 40 and he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Short answer, no one. I mean, think about it. Nobody has ever advised him, given him an idea. Nobody's presented a plan that, hey, this is a little better than yours. Yours didn't work out too well. Nobody's ever informed God on anything. I mean, can you imagine? It would be like some high-flying attorney needing, you know, wisdom on some piece of, of, you know, some legal counsel on some complicated piece, and he goes to a fish to ask him. That's what it'd be like God coming to us, going to a fish for legal matters. He doesn't need any counseling. But but Paul goes on in, in 35, and he says, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? This is from Job 38 to 41, where God asks Job 60 questions. This is one of them. What can we give back to God that hasn't first been given to us what do we have what did we bring he's given it to us have you determined anything has anyone here determined the place that they were born think about these profound issues you didn't determine where you'd be born you didn't determine when you'd be born you did not determine to whom you'd be born you didn't determine the color of your hair or the color of your eyes You didn't determine the stature of your body, the height, the shape. All that is from God. You weren't weighed in. Your opinion wasn't taken. Who has been his counselor? Who has sought? Who has been sought wisdom from God? All this is just showing to us the nature of God. You know, Calvin asks this question, or he gives this warning. He says, let us make no searchings respecting the Lord, except as far as he has revealed himself in the scriptures. For otherwise, we shall enter a labyrinth of which the retreat is not easy. You know, we, you know, many people feel comfortable to speak for God. And they tell us, you know, well, you know, well God shouldn't be doing this. Or I don't know why God's doing this. Or who does God think he is doing this? I was in a conversation with a friend, actually, a number of weeks ago about a common tragedy that we know about. Well, why is God doing that? God should be picking on somebody else. And in my mind, I thought, we're entering a world we don't want to enter. Uh, I just want to take a step back when we begin to advise God on how he works his world. But it it causes us to pause. His wisdom is unfathomable. His ways are untraceable. But, But look at 36, because his glory is incomparable. Look at how he says it. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. 
This is, this is mind-bending, even if you're not a Christian here. This statement is profound. For from him are all things. Everything that you have is from him. And you say, yeah, but I've really worked hard over my life. And I would say, yes, you have, with the breath that he's given you, with the talents that he's given you, with the opportunities that he's given you, with the raw material that he's given you. Everything, all things, all things. That's a comprehensive term. It means all things. In Greek, it means still all things. It's all things are from him. They're from him. When you speak about salvation, he is the originator of it. It's sourced in him. The Messiah has come from him. He determined the time and the manner in which Jesus would come and die. He determines the one who will be inheritors of this great salvation. It's not just come. all things have come from him. All things have come through him. It's through Jesus that this mediation will take place. It's, it's through him. He will bring about the situations and the purposes and the plans to wake you up to the reality of the gospel. It will be through him that you persevere in the faith and you walk in faithfulness to the end. It will be through his grace. It's not just from him and through him, it's to him. All of salvation is to him. You are being saved to him. He's the end of salvation. He's the goal of salvation. Salvation is not simply to deliver us from hell or to heaven. Salvation is delivering us to him, the one who has created us. It begins, it continues, and it will end in him. That's why Paul writes at the very end, can't you imagine how he'd trail off just his mind numbed at this point? To him be glory forever. That's why. He gets all the glory because he's done all the work. He's given all the grace. He's been magnificent. To him be glory forever. That's where we want to end up. However we understand this mass of 11 chapters of salvation, what we say at the end is to him be glory forever and ever. Paul even ends it, amen. Amen is we agree on this. Yes, to him be glory. So, so let me just finish this sermon with, with four ways that you can glorify him. Four ways that to him can be the glory. Uh, the first way I would encourage you is just to enjoy God. That you would enjoy him. That you'd make him the center of your happiness. And let me explain that. To, to make anything else the center of our good, even good things like marriage or parenting or work or any aspect of your life, to make that the center is to miss the mark. The good things that God gives us, as I've shared before, they're like the shafts of light from the sun. They're lovely. They're good. We see life by them. But they're not the sun. They're just shafts of light. They're meant to draw your attention back to God. So the good things in life are not meant to become the good but they're the good that you follow back to give thanks to God and to live for his glory and to show you his character. To make an ultimate from something that is not ultimate is to fall into idolatry and to lose the joy that the gift is to give you. That's the irony of Scripture. The irony of Scripture is that when you make the good the ultimate, you lose the joy of the good. They're just meant, we want to be grateful for the good things in our lives. But they're all just reminders to us of his just great character, 
kindness, his mercy to us. C.S. Lewis spoke about it in these words. And you've heard this before, but it's been a while. He says, the longer I looked into, the more I came to, sus to suspect that I was perceiving a universal law. The woman who makes a dog the center of her life loses, in the end, not only her human usefulness and dignity, but even the proper pleasure of dog keeping. The man who makes alcohol his chief good loses not only his job, but his palate and all power of enjoying the earlier levels of intoxication. Only a Brit could pull that off, I'm convinced <laughs> of it. An Anglican at it. He says, every preference of a small good to a great or a partial good to a total good involves the loss of the small or the partial good for which the sacrifice is made. You see what he's saying? You go after partial good, you get nothing. He says, put first things first and we get second things thrown in. Put second things first and we lose both first and second things. So enjoy God for God. Make him the center of your affections. Make him the center of your attention. Whatever is good in your life, rejoice over it and then just follow it right up to God and thank him for it. And recognize that that is just a reflection of his love and his character. And worship him. And secondly, would you contemplate God? The way to glorify God is to contemplate his grandeur. And listen, the secularists are loving contemplation and meditation. The secularists are into now visualization and helping us live this life. Contemplate God as he expresses himself in Scripture. In other words, go to Scripture and contemplate the character of God. You cannot go out into the woods. You can't think great thoughts of God without the Scriptures. If you do, you're just imagining a God of your making. This is why God said, make no graven images. There is no image from the created order that can represent God fully and beautifully as he is, only as he has revealed himself. So we need the Scripture to contemplate him. He gets to define himself for us. And we're satisfied in that. But when you go to the scriptures, don't stop there. Go up and contemplate them. A lot of times we will, we will kind of almost mock the secular scientist who can look at the created order and not marvel over God, and yet we can have Bible studies and study the scriptures and not marvel over God. So the scriptures are necessary to help us contemplate, but they also aren't to be stopped in just studying the word. But we study the scriptures and find in them characteristics and actions of God that just lead us into worship. And then thirdly, I would say trust God in trials. We can trust God in the midst of struggles. And our, our believing in God is not simply that he has the power to deliver. But our believing in God is that God intends the trial to be moving us to a purpose that we cannot yet see and understand. He says that all things are from him, through him, and to him. All things, including our trials and our burdens and the heavinesses of life that we face. That God in his wise and good counsel, because everything is from him, through him, and to him, he will use them to drive us to himself. And we'll find him. Sufficient. Even in the day of darkness. William Cooper writes these words. He says, deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill. 
He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. He will make it plain to us. For many, it may not be until we see him face to face, but nobody will stop and say, it was a bad turn. I mean, we can trust him in the midst of our trials. And faith looks like that. It looks like a trust. It isn't a giddy. It's not a frivolity. It's not a ignoring the seriousness of what's before us. It's a trust in that if all things are from him and through him and to him, then we will worship him for that. And then last, I would say, consecrate your life to him. Make him the center of your life. Live for his glory. Sacrifice yourself for his glory. It doesn't, th- th- this is a principle straight out of the Reformation. To, in, to live for his glory. A beautiful thing about this is it doesn't matter who you are. You could be the president of a Fortune 500 company. You can be a janitor. You can live for his glory. He says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all for the glory of God. It doesn't matter what you do. You could have the most complicated task of which many thousands are resting in, or you could have the most menial task. He says, whatever you do, whatever you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. Can't get any more basic than eating and drinking. What he's saying is that all of our lives can be an act of worship for his glory. And when I talk about living for his glory, I'm talking about you living in a way that displays your commitment to God over your commitments to anything or anyone on this earth. When I talk about living for God's glory, as one author said, it's making his worth public by you living in a way that shows you would rather honor him and glorify him than satisfy yourself. So it may be diligence at work. It may be loving your neighbor. It may be being honest when it costs you. But you are showing to the world that he is of supreme value to you, even to the point of willing to lay down your life because he is that worthy. When I was in seminary, I read uh, a, a treatise by Jonathan Edwards called The End for Which God Created the World. It's a great, it's a great piece of literature, The End for Which God Created the World. And in this writing, he argues that God created all things for his glory, all things for his glory. Well, it was a paradigm shift for me, because if everything is for his glory, then my marriage is for his glory. So, so I, I, don't, I, don't, I didn't get married to be happy. A lot of people do, but married for his glory. I, I didn't get married to make Carol happy or to make me happy. Well, think about that. When you walk in marriage for the glory of God, it changes the way you forgive. It changes the way you pursue one another. It changes the way you give your money. It changes everything. If I'm doing this for the glory of God, then even though we may be in a, in a rift, we're going to seek forgiveness for one another because he's more important than being right in the conflict. It changes the way you're married. It changes the way you parent. You know, parenting for the glory of God. You're not just going to parent to make sure your child's satisfied or successful. It may bring, you may have to bring hardness on the child so as to teach them the important truths of God or the way you minister, the way you handle ministry. The ministry can get off rail just like anything else in life, but ministering for the glory of God will enable you to do hard things that may be easier to not do, but you do it because he's worth it. 
So you, you have this text here. Paul comes at the end of this difficult theological section of 9 to 11, and he finishes out with, be humbled before the mystery of God so that you can celebrate the majesty of God. His wisdom is beyond measure. His ways are beyond tracing out, and his glory is incomparable. Let your humility over his salvation lead to living for his glory. I don't want you to live for his glory with kind of a white-knuckled obedience. It's understanding his mercy to you. He consigned all of us to disobedience so that he might give mercy to us. It's being overwhelmed by his mercy, which fuels our behavior. In other words, as a Christian, we don't live for his glory because it's the right thing to do. We live for his glory because we love him. We, we love him and we're overwhelmed at his kindness to us. So let's just take a moment now and ask God for grace to understand this and and understand this in a way that you will be led to worship and celebration, not that you'll get all the details down of these texts. And then I'll pray for us in a moment.